we want a pedestrian oriented community, not just the core villages. We want people to be able to walk from one place to another in five or 10 minutes and leave their car at home. And that's really a big philosophy for us. The whole resort is planned around it. You should be able to get on a lift at any point in the valley and ski the whole resort never have to take your ski resort. Really, what we're trying to achieve here is a resort with the modern lifts and amenities and the, the walkable nature and character of an old European resort. Welcome to the storm. I'm host, Stuart Winchester, back for my second Ski Canada podcast today. It, it is a big one. We'll get right to that. First, however, you can do me a huge favor by popping over to stormskiing.com and subscribing to the Storm Skiing newsletter. Not only will you find an article there that accompanies this podcast and includes tons of additional context on our conversation, but you will find hundreds of posts analyzing the world of lift surf skiing. And when you sign up for the newsletter, these will drop directly into your email inbox at a rate of at least 100 per year. Stop getting your ski news from Facebook. Get it from the Storm Skiing Newsletter instead. You can also follow the storm on Twitter or Instagram at Storm Ski Journal. Before we get into Sun Peaks, I have a big announcement. I am so fired up to introduce a new partner for the Storm Skiing Journal and podcast, Profile Search International. Coming off a second consecutive season of record attendance, the ski industry has never been more competitive and neither has the war for the very best talent. How will you ensure that your organization is positioned to compete with the best and deliver results to your customers and stakeholders? Profile Search International is the only executive search and recruitment firm in the world that is 100% focused on the ski industry. They have placed hundreds of leaders in roles that truly drive results at the best and most progressive ski areas for more than 30 years. Profile Search International uses their intimate understanding of skiing and related industries and of the candidates available worldwide to align talent with your needs and goals. With offices in the US and Canada, Profile Search International can find and negotiate with the right leaders for your team. Reach out to them directly at ProfileSearch.com or contact them by email or phone or send me a note and I will forward it on to the amped up and ready to charge team at Profile Search International. The website again is ProfileSearch.com. Episode 131, Darcy Alexander, Vice President and General Manager of Sun Peaks, British Columbia going huge today as we explore Canada's second largest ski area, Sun Peaks. No, I did not misspeak. Sun Peaks is the second largest ski area in Canada. It is bigger than anything on the Powder Highway, bigger than anything in Banff, bigger than anything else in BC, except of course, Whistler, which is the largest ski area on the continent. If you put Sun Peaks alongside US resorts, only Park City, Palisades, Tahoe, Big Sky, Vail, Heavenly, and Bachelor are larger. And Sun Peaks is bigger than Mammoth, Snowmass, Steamboat, or Breckenridge. 
it's a serious operation is my point here. And as I often say, there was nothing inevitable about this. Up until the early 90s, Sun Peaks was known as Mount Todd, an unremarkable backwater with a handful of lifts serving a single peak. Enter Nippon Cable, a Japanese lift manufacturer that also happens to own and operate a number of ski resorts in Japan, and also, by the way, 25% of Whistler. Over the past 30 plus years, Nippon Cable has steadily invested in Sun Peaks, building out new mountains and installing new lifts until the ski area was one of the very best on the continent. My guest today has been there nearly as long as Nippon Cable has owned the joint, contributing to, and at many times guiding, this massive ski area's massive evolution. That gives him special insight into how Sun Peaks became the Icon Pass gem that it is today. Let's go. My guest today is the Vice President and general manager of Sun Peaks, British Columbia. With 4,270 acres of terrain served by 13 lifts spread over three mountains on a 2,894 foot vertical drop, Sun Peaks is the second largest ski area in Canada. He has worked at Sun Peaks since 1992 and has been involved in almost every aspect of the ski industry in Canada. Darcy Alexander is my guest. Darcy, welcome to the storm. I am really looking forward to talking all things Sun Peaks with you today. How are you doing this morning? I'm fantastic, Stuart. Thanks very much. It's a pleasure to join you, and I look forward to the chat also. You know, I have to start by apologizing. I introduced your mountain with the vertical drop in feet. I've only recently started to record podcasts with mountain leaders in Canada. So I should have also put that in meters. So sorry about that. I have a little bit of a learning curve here. So I, I think that's around 900, 950 meters. Is that about right? That's about right, right? 959, I think it is to be exact, but no big deal. <laughs> All right, great. So let's get right into the 2022 to 23 ski season, Darcy. We're recording this on May 23rd. So your season has been over for a while, I would imagine. I'm not sure what your closing day was this past year. But overall, how was the ski season for Sun Peaks? It was fantastic, really. Um, we had good snow. We were uh, we always have consistent snow at Sun Peaks, but this year we had snow about 30% more than normal. So oh, wow. we uh, we had a very good year. We, we broke a lot of records. We uh, A lot of things helped out. We did a lot of planning for pandemic recovery and what that would look like and anticipating what changes and how things would look a little differently in people. So it, it was a, a really good year for us. Um, the borders uh, with U.S. and international visitors, which is a big chunk of our business, opened again. That helped a lot. Uh, regional markets, which we saw growth in the pandemic, and it, we held on to that growth, so that's good. And we, we broke our skier visit records and, 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 and many others, so we were very happy. Well, congratulations on that. You mentioned you broke some snowfall records. Was that cumulative for the season? What, what snowfall records specifically did you break this year at Sun Peaks? Well, we, uh, we had about 30% more than a normal year. And it was one of our top five years in my 32 years here. So from that perspective, we didn't break absolutes, but we were right up there in record territory. What was your total? I don't do the accumulated snowfall total, but I, I mean, we had basically, we had over a two meter base at uh, mid, uh, mid and top of the mountain in April, which is normally, it's probably 
30, 40% more than we would normally have. So you, you said you set all-time record for skier visits. Do you think that was a combination of folks who discovered Sun Peaks during the pandemic had to stay closer to home, staying around and saying, okay, we like what we're seeing here. And that pent up demand from the U.S. for a little more variety and getting up in the Canadian Rockies. Absolutely. We, we, we sold more season passes in the pandemic period than we had before. And we have always done fairly well in the Pacific Northwest, uh, greater Seattle area. And it was, um, you know, those people came back in droves. We also do uh, fairly well out of Australia and New Zealand. Those people were able to come back for the first time in a couple of years. Uh, we're seeing some, still some uh, challenges with the transportation industry and, you know, them getting back to kind of full capacity. And, but we're looking forward to that over the next couple of years. So Australia, New Zealand, that's a haul. And those folks tend to take a little bit longer vacations than we do here in North America. Do you find that they come and set up shop at Sun Peaks for several weeks? Or do they make you part of a tour of BC, Powder Highway, maybe Banff, maybe Whistler, as they make their way through Canada? Or, or do you see a little bit of both? We see a bit of both. Um, increasingly, we see those people, like this year, I talked to many Australians and New Zealanders and did a bunch of research. This year we had, you know, normally those people come along and stay for around a three-week period. This year we had people coming for as long as five weeks out of that marketplace because they hadn't been able to be, come out for a couple of years. And then we also saw this year an increase in, you know, with the, some of the overall the resort pass products uh, come and, and, and do more of the tour thing. And we've always prided ourselves on being a high quality experience and something for everybody. And, and, and we're not uh, very enthused about those uh, broader pass products uh, bringing visitation to us from markets that are uh, normally challenging for us to reach. Yeah, let's get into that a little bit here, Darcy. Let's talk about the Icon Pass. This was Sun Peaks first season on the Icon Pass. And, and it's a really compelling ad because if you look at what else is in your neighborhood on the Icon Pass, you have Red Mountain, you have Panorama, you have Revelstoke, you have Banff, which is not too far away. How was that first season on the Icon Pass? And are you finding that folks who visit on Icon are making Sun Peaks part of a bigger BC tour? It's hard for us to know whether they're making a big, bigger BC tour. You know, we know that it came fairly well. We're really happy with the program. It's a complementary network of resorts, uh, you know, th that are uh, recognized destination resorts on a global scale. We feel like we fit in that category very nicely, but we're not as well known because we're relatively new. So we're looking for more exposure in the U.S. and icon markets, and that program provides it to us. And it's, it's the first year has gone really well. Did you get a sense of folks kind of being surprised with Sun Peaks? I mean, second largest ski area in Canada. I think a lot of people were probably surprised when I said that in the intro. I think Whistler grabs a lot of headlines and there's a lot of other large resorts there. Is, is that when folks come to you on the Icon Pass, they're saying, wow, there's a lot of mountain here. I think so. Yeah, absolutely. One of the biggest challenges you have in any business is getting the word out and, and, and celebrating your product. And we have a fantastic product and, uh, you know, relative to the size of our resort and uh, an amount of terrain we have for everybody and every skill class, um, it's, you know, we're relatively unknown, I'll say, from that perspective. So I think the, the Icon Pass is a, is a great way for us to put our, our name out there and our, our product out there. And uh, I'm not afraid for us to compare and compete with anybody. 
So the Icon Pass just wrapped up its, well, I guess it's still going, its fifth season since it debuted back in 2018. I imagine Sun Peaks with the profile of that mountain could have joined anytime you like. What ultimately drove that decision, Darcy, to join the Icon Pass? Um, really, we're trying to grow our the awareness and revel of our resort in, in a in a destination market. It's already a big market for us. We already do 25, 30% of our visits from out of Canada. And, and we want to grow that business because we've always we positioned ourselves uh, to be a, a, a big destination resort with our uh, approvals and our master plan and all that stuff. We are, we are the second biggest resort in Canada and, and probably will be in every meaningful category in the next decade. And we need to get that word out and, and have the guests from all over the United States and the world come here and experience that. And go home and tell their friends and neighbors about it because we believe that's the way that you grow in this business. So it sounds like it was a decision that you made pretty deliberately, pretty carefully. The Icon Pass lands differently in different communities. Sometimes it blends right in. Sometimes the locals make a little more noise, as we saw in its debut season at Jackson and Aspen, and even a little bit at Big Sky. Now that's faded, and maybe it's just not in the headlines anymore. Maybe it's still happening. Curious what the reaction was from your locals with the Icon Pass. Did you see any pushback or did it kind of fit right in? It pretty much fit right in. Um, we're a purpose-built uh, resort community. Uh, when I came here 30 years ago, we had 40 employees and, and 20 houses in the, in the neighborhood and, and next no destination visitation capability whatsoever. Um, so we're built around tourism. And long haul tourism is a key element of, of what we're built around, uh, high quality product. And, and that's really so, uh, you know, the other thing that I see with the complaints of Icon and other passes is, is crowding. We don't have that issue. You know, we have a, a tremendous facility with a lot of terrain and a lot of capacity. And it's always our objective to retain that um, space feeling and the concept that you can you can go and ski like our longest lift line in the in a season in maybe 10 15 minutes and those are only on, on really on peak days so we have very large uphill capacity it's balanced very well with our terrain capacity so that you can go out there on a big day uh, you know, have a 10 to 15 minute lift line and virtually find yourself on a run with you and your 10 best friends <laughs> When you do see those lift lines, Darcy, are they concentrated on one section of the resort? Do they get spread out? Are, are there always places where you can find no lines? Kind of take us inside the mountain a little bit and, and tell us where to go on those busy days. Well, there's always places you can go and find nobody. You know, you can go over on the north facing side on Morrissey. Most days it's it's underutilized, uh, you know, on, even on peak days. I doubt you get lift lines over there. So you can go that stuff. You can go up on the top of the mountain, out on the back, and, and you know places like West Bowl, which will be lift service next year, and uh, other places like the Gills, where we keep definite. Uh, uh, we made a decision to keep that as slack country in the near country. You have to do a little hike to get out there, but you can find fresh lines out there every day of the week, even in peak season. So you added Icon this year. Sun Peaks had been on the Mountain Collective Pass for a few years. Just talk us through this, Darcy. Was Mountain Collective, in your view, a little bit of a trial run for Icon, or was there a different motive to joining Mountain Collective? 
Um, I wouldn't necessarily call it a trial run. It gave us some experience in the whole multi-resort pass product landscape and how that works. Uh, we had knowledge of it from uh, the past and when uh, Whistler Blackcomb was in this program, we liked to look at that program. So we went into that for uh, to get some exposure in it, to see what it would uh, look like from just how the whole multi-resort pass thing is going to work. We were very acutely aware of the crowding issues in some places and stuff like that. And the Mountain Collective program didn't seem to have that kind of issue. So we that we kind of dipped our toe in the water there. So I guess you're right. It's, it, was, it was a trial run, but um, we really value the Mountain Collective relationship. It's a great product with a lot of great resorts. And we've learned a bunch for it, and then we'll continue on with it. Yeah, it sounds like you're pretty happy with both. I mean, do they do they complement each other well? Do they bring a different kind of guest, or or is it just is it just they're they're both adding good to your resort? Yeah, they're both adding to the resort, but the, you're right, they're complementary. They do serve different guests. They come from different areas of the country, from a balance of, of that. And I guess the Mountain Collectus gave us a confidence that we could succeed in any of those markets and put our our, our brand out there and our product out there. And that people would uh, be receptive to that. And it's it's worked very well. You know, we try to be very deliberate in what we do. We plan it and plan it and plan it. That's my background in this industry. I came out of the planning side of things. And um, we find that it's, it's, when you move on things, you do it deliberately and thoughtfully. And you've got a lot more chance of success if you do it that way. So let's talk about that background a little bit, Darcy. You said you arrived in Sun Peaks 30 years ago. I mean, I, I can't even comprehend the amount of change that you've witnessed firsthand as that mountain and that community have grown. So take us back here to 1992. I mean, what did Sun Peaks look like when you arrived and what drew you there? Uh, it looked like uh, a project, a huge project. Okay. Uh, and, and if you know me, nothing nothing gets me jacked up like a challenge. Um, so I came here and the, the newest lift was built in the 1970s. Um, it was a, basically a day ski area for the local marketplace that had less than 40,000 visits a year. We had approximately 40 employees and um, an infrastructure that, say, let's had a bit of a maintenance deficit. AKA it was kind of run down and old and needed to be replaced almost in the entire infrastructure. Um, so they had a, an operating permit, which in British Columbia means you couldn't, uh, you, you were very limited in your development and things like that. So it was, a, it was a huge project. And what attracted me was a completely rare and unique opportunity to build a resort and a community from scratch. So uh, that's what, got me into the game. Uh, I'd been in the business for about seven years in a couple of different resorts and one working for EcoSign Mountain Resort Planners out of Whistler for a couple of years. And uh, that really, you know, I met a lot of great people in that stuff and the connections I made with Paul Matthews and Don Murray from EcoSign, and, uh, Jimmy Spencer, who was the president of the Canada West Skiers Association at the time, Peter Alder, another senior uh, guy, Hugh Smythe, uh, all these people uh, it made an impact on me. And, and, and when I got into the industry, it was all about going out and having some fun. And, that, and I've always believed that you find something that you love to do and you'll never regret it. And 
You'll never work a day in your life. <laughs> so where were those first couple jobs, Darcy? Have you always been based in Western Canada? I guess just take us into this. Where did you grow up and then what led to those first jobs in skiing and where were they? Well, I, I grew up in small town, northern Canada, little town called Fort St. John up on the Alaska Highway. So mm -hmm. I grew up playing hockey. That's not a surprise for Canadians. <laughs> My dad ran the rink. I had three older brothers who were great hockey players, too. I played varsity hockey at UBC and was scratching at the pole to become a professional hockey player, but that didn't work out. So I've always been involved in sports and athletics. I've skied since I was 11 years old. There was a small riverbank hill at home called Big Bam, had a rope tow. That's where I learned how to ski. Oh, wow. <laughs> and, Is it still there? Uh, yeah, uh, they've, they've moved it to another riverbank. Uh, okay. The, the, the slope stability of the riverbanks around the place where I grew up isn't the greatest. They've had a few ah. slides and it's a bit of a challenge, but they're still skiing and they're still plugging away at it. Um, and it's a, you know, it's a volunteer kind of community organization kind of stuff. So, it's, so cool. you know, I remember those days and it got me started. I always loved the outdoors and loved skiing and, and the prospect of building something is, you know, that's, that's what I grew up doing. Building things was first nature. That takes us into skiing. What was your first opportunity to build something in skiing? Um, I got out of graduate school with an MBA in 1984, and I went to work for Sunshine Village in Banff. First thing I did there was manage and supervise the creation of their first really overall master plan. And the development of that stuff helped put in the first uh, detachable quad chair at Sunshine Village. Uh, and uh, from there, just went off to other areas, went off to work with EcoSign Mountain Resort Planners out of Worcester for a few years. And then this opportunity came along and I decided to, you know, jump in with both feet and go for it. So when you were working for EcoSign or EcoSign and you're working on various projects, what, was there something in that work where, okay, I imagine you're working on a certain resort plan and, and you get shifted around once you're done with that project. What, what was it that you liked about that? And ultimately, did you, did you have that desire to just be in one place and stay there beyond just one project and really own something and, and, and shepherd it through its full life cycle? Well, at the time, the, 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 the planning thing was fantastic. I, I really enjoyed that. I got to work on projects in Europe, in the United States, in Australia, in New Zealand, in, in Asia, in Japan, in Korea. And uh, it, was, it was fantastic. I, I probably worked in the, the three years that I did that job on 50, 60 different projects around the world. And I learned a tremendous amount about what works in what areas and what doesn't. And, and it was just a fantastic learning experience. And so to, to get to be in one place, uh, I have this lovely woman called my wife uh, <laughs> who, who decided that it was all fun and games for me to travel all over the world 255 days a year, but that didn't really make a good family <laughs> arrangement. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so she persuaded me to, to, to try to go into something a little more uh, being in one place for a while. And this opportunity came along uh, very almost exactly at the same time frame I was having those discussions. So I decided to give it a spin. And uh, obviously here I am 32 years later, it uh, worked very well for me. And I think for the 
ownership of the resort and the community as well. So you come into Sun Peaks and you have all this experience with different resorts. And it sounds like from the way you described it, the mountain was very raw at the time. And obviously today we're talking raw. It was blank state. Yeah. So we're talking today about the second largest ski area in Canada. And you don't go from just a rough mountain in the wilderness to a fully fledged resort that's featured on the Icon Pass by accident. I mean, where did you even begin? You know, you, you come in here and there's all these different ways you can go. Just talk about the mentality and that mindset you brought into this to very deliberately take what was a little bit of a backwater and turn it into what it is today. Well, uh, first I had tremendous support. Uh, the ownership uh, that came along that I came to work with here, Nippon Cable out of Japan, is a lift manufacturer and a ski area owner and operator in Japan. So they're very knowledgeable people. Uh, they're also a, a minority partner in Whistler Blackcomb. And uh, so I have the experience of a very uh, knowledgeable ownership group who understood what it could be. Um, at our, our planning firm that I had worked with uh, out of Whistler for three years before, uh, Ecosign, uh, they saw the potential for this place. Um, the, the, the demographics in the growing population and the growing uh, transportation infrastructure into the interior of BC uh, at that point in time where it was definitely a positive in that as well. So there's just a, a million factors in the whole thing. And, you know, not the least of which is British Columbia have probably the most progressive ski resort development policy in the world. Uh, a mountain resort branch, it's called a BC Commercial Alpine Ski Policy, where you can have access to crown land. You go through an extensive public process and you have to prove you have the investment and all that kind of stuff. But once you get past those points, then the, the process is fairly straightforward. Uh, you meet your milestones and you meet your targets and and you can continue to grow and move forward. So the first thing we did was create a, a comprehensive master plan. Took us about a year, year and a half to do that and go through all the government uh, review and approval processes and get that. And then we started immediately with investing in replacing and doing the infrastructure. You know, very first summer we rebuilt two ski after the master plan first summer of 93 we built two ski lifts and and basically started revamping and and re rebuilding the whole resort which lifts did you start with uh we started with the two core lifts on sunburst and sundance sunburst goes up todd mountain and sundance goes up uh, sundance peak uh, to the east and detachable technology on Sunburst, uh, the Sundance, we put in fixed grip to begin with, and within three years, we upgraded it to detachable. So, you know, by 10 years later, we were over on another mountain on Mount Morrissey across the valley and continued to grow from there. So it, we've come a long way. We've, uh, we have now our own accommodation complex in the Sun Peaks Grand Hotel. We have the ski operation. We have over a thousand employees in peak season and uh, you know, a, a growing resort. We have a resort community now. The, the, it's become a municipality. We have 1,500 permanent residents in a resort and a municipality that has an assessed value of over $1.4 billion. And I dare say it was less than $3 million when I came here 32 wow. years ago. So. Wow. So the evolution has just been amazing. Talk a little bit about the relationship 
between you and Nippon Cable over that time? Because there's a lot of different ownership models. And it sounds like once you could prove you had the funding, you had that green light from BC to get moving. It, it, does Nippon Cable mostly take the point of view, of, okay, we're going to provide the funding, we're going to sign off on the master plan, and then we're going to rely on you, the folks on the ground, to actually visualize this, get this done. I, I guess the question is, how involved are they day to day? And how, how much do they just stand back, make sure you have what you need, and let you grow the resort according to that master plan you've agreed upon? Well, well, they're not involved in the day-to-day, but they're very involved in the, the investment overall and, and what we do and how we do it and what goes first. And so they're very knowledgeable um, about the industry and the planning and, you know, they, they manufacture ski lifts. So they're obviously very knowledgeable about that stuff as well. So they're very involved in the, the strategy of it all and, and what investment goes first and, and, and that and Myself and my executive management team, we bring things to them and, you know, have our, our regular board meetings on a quarterly basis and explain how we're doing, what we're doing and where the strategy shifts. And, you know, we, we're planners by nature, all of us. We have regular planning sessions every few years to, are we still going in the right direction? Are we still doing, the, you know, this, that? So although they're not involved in the day-to-day, they're very involved in the, the long-term strategic direction of the resort. And their vision and commitment is critical uh, to the speed at which we've been able to move and the success we've had over the last 30 years. So it's interesting that this is a lift company. Your lift fleet is all Doppelmayr, Doppelmayr SeaTech. Does Nippon Cable have a relationship with Doppelmayr? Do they make lifts under their own name in Japan? Just curious how the Doppelmayr lift fleet fits in with this notion of being owned by a company that makes its own lifts? Well, uh, the answer is yes. Dimple Non-Cable and Doppelmayr have a relationship in Japan. They've had a relationship since the mid-1980s. Uh, where Nippon Cable manufactures lifts under Japan and they use some Doppelmayr and some of their own technology. And uh, that relationship is strong and continues to this day. And in fact, Nippon Cable is exclusive in Japan, but they have they compete with Doppelmayr and, and other areas of Asia where Nippon Cable and Doppelmayr both sell lift installations. They're really, uh, you know, complementary, competitive, uh, a rather unique relationship. Yeah. Have they ever considered putting Nippon lifts at Sun Peaks? Um, no, uh, the Asian code and the, and the uh, lift code is quite different. So mm-hmm. the, uh, the, the technology and stuff like that, it's, it's more simple and uh, elegant solution to have Doppelmayr who already have all the expertise in North America and the different lift codes and the different requirements to, uh, to build stuff here. It's just cost effective. Do you know anything about those Japanese codes and how they're different? Yeah, a little bit, uh, not exhaustive detail, but they have requirements that you can only be so far off the ground uh, oh, uh, and, and things like that. And they have different uh, safety codes for, how your resort, how you operate the lift in terms of people and stuff like that. Their their lift codes are more uh, operator, uh, more people required and things like that. Uh, and they're you know, they have a require a lot more towers and and some different safety protocols than we use, uh, which is it's quite a bit different in that way. So that's so interesting. I never even thought about that. So you mentioned the ability to develop 
ski resorts in British Columbia. And I have noticed that new resorts are built there more frequently than other places in North America. And you mentioned the crown land. Curious how that works. Is Sun Peaks built on public land? And if so, just walk us through that lease process of, of how you get how you work with the Canadian government to run the resort there. Well, first of all, it's a provincial government responsibility. Uh, Crown land in Canada is provincial government owned, except for where there's specific things like national parks, which is federal crown land. But but most crown land in Canada is provincial control. So our commercial alpine ski policy is is a, is a policy of the provincial uh, land. Um, so what the intent is for develop ski resorts. Now, it, it, it all starts as crown land. I, the first process is bringing a, a, a proposal forth to uh, the province. Then that proposal gets approval to go to the next stage, which, which is a, a master plan. And then there's a full public review of that stuff and how much land is involved. Then if a master plan is goes through the public process and gets approved, then the next step is called a master development agreement. And that's a 50, 60 year long agreement between a developer and the provincial crown to develop a resort in this location, according to the pre-approved master plan. Um, so what happens then is this, the ski terrain will always remain provincially crown owned and a long term lease is in put in place for the ski terrain. The, then the, the, the ski resort developer is allowed to purchase crown land in the base area for base area and real estate development based on how much you put into the mountain in terms of resort infrastructure. Um, so let's say I build a chairlift that can handle 3,000 people. There's a formula that converts into beds and uh, in, in, in accommodation at the base where you're entitled to, once you build that ski facility and have it operating and under operation, then you can buy that crown land, turn it into fee simple land, develop it for real estate and sell it off according to your pre-approved master plan. That's a nutshell of a very complicated contractual agreement and all that kind of stuff. But go ahead with your question. So when, when Nippon Cable purchased Sun Peaks, I believe that was in the area it was called Todd Mountain. I'm not sure if they, when they changed the name exactly. 1993, but, August of 1993. Okay, were you behind? Were you part of that process? Yes, yes, we did a we did a contest with a local community about what we should change the name to. Uh, Todd Mountain uh, in 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 German is pronounced Toad, uh, mm. which means death. <laughs> so although it's an English name, uh, there were some unfortunate consequences that, and we wanted to change the name and and change the the, the whole. Uh, image and and what we were going to be doing because we were going to do something dramatically different than what the old Todd Mountain was. So do you still have locals who call it Todd Mountain? We, we have a ski area out here close to me in New Jersey called Mountain Creek, and they changed the name from Vernon Valley Great Gorge in 1997. But all these folks I know who grew up in the area still call it Vernon Valley Great Gorge, which is funny to me because that was 26 years ago. Do, do you have people accepted Sun Peaks or do you still get Todd Mountain? Um, we still have the old uh, original ski crowd and a few of them still call it Todd Mountain. And we, the name of the mountain is still Todd in the geographic reference books and stuff like that. But the resort is Sun Peaks and it's pretty much accepted as that. 
So where is where is Sun Peaks in its long term government crown land lease here? You said it's a fifty to sixty year agreement, and if the scary was was founded, you know, I imagine you're at least on your second lease here. But but where are you in that process? How much longer do you have on your current lease? Uh, current lease has another twenty years to go. Yeah, and we 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 will be negotiating an extension on that. The, the good thing about the leases is, is as long as you meet your contractual requirements and commitments on both sides, that the ever the the release the, the leases are evergreen renewable. So we will we will be renewing that uh, moving forward for another 50, 60 year lease. So interesting thing about Nippon Cable that you mentioned they own several ski areas in Japan and also a 25% ownership stake in Whistler Blackcomb, which is really interesting. I think most folks are under the impression that Vail Resorts owns 100% of Whistler Blackcomb. Does Sun Peaks have any relationship with those sister resorts that are also owned by Nippon Cable? Because of the different ownership structures, you know, we have a reciprocal pass relationship with Whistler Blackcomb. Uh, their pass holders get a 50% discount here and vice versa. But because they're separate companies, they operate separately. Like we communicate back and forth, but we have different operating philosophies, different ways we run things and different ways we do things. And since uh, Nippon's a minority partner uh, with Vail and Whistler Blackcomb, their input is, is, is limited by those restrictions. So Whistler Blackcomb, obviously a headliner on the Epic Pass. Curious if Sun Peaks had an invitation to join the Epic Pass and ultimately why you went with Icon instead. Um, we really haven't ever discussed uh, joining the Epic Pass with with uh, Vail Group. And we felt the uh, the Icon Pass was a it was a different uh, different product, different approach, was was more in line with what we were doing as an independent resort than as part of uh, the Vail uh, conglomerate. All right, let's look at Nippon Cable's long-term vision here. You've mentioned the master plan a few times. Obviously, you've done a lot in 30 years. And if someone came up the canyon out of a time machine, they would not recognize the place. So lay this out for us. There's there's still a lot in this master plan and at full development, 20-some lifts, I believe, is what the vision calls for. But give us big picture here. If you were to complete the current master plan, what would Sun Peaks look like at full build out? You'd have a, a, a community with probably five to 6,000 permanent residents. You'd have accommodation for approximately 24,000 uh, visitors at a time. You're probably doing a, a, a close to a million skier visits a year, probably doing a very substantial number, probably half or more of that number in summer visitation you know, half a million plus summer visitors on top of that. You would be the second largest ski area in Canada in every measurable metric. Uh, there would probably be around 4,000 employees working in the community, primarily tourism related, others in service of the community. And so, yeah, we would be in the top, I would say the top five to seven ski resorts in North America from a size and a capacity perspective and from a visitation perspective. What do, what's your scare visit number today? Just under 500,000. As far as the footprint of the mountain goes, it's very expansive right now. But if you're building out the ski terrain, where would that expand to? And, and that's in relation to the current trail map, which I'm looking at right now. So we have a lot more trail capacity than we have lift capacity, which is, <laughs> if you look at it, 
we probably have lift capacity right now for 8,000 and we probably have trail capacity for about 12. Mm -hmm. And that's uh, a legacy of all the trails that were built before we came along and, and other things expanded. So what we're going to do is we're going to not only add additional lifts, we're going to increase the capacity of some of the existing lifts. For example, the, the two core lifts that we built uh, originally in Sundance and Sunburst right now are detachable quads running about 2,400 an hour each. I think Sundance actually runs at 2,600. So we will probably put um, larger capacity, uh, probably a Chondola to replace the sunburst lift, which is the big, goes up the big mountain. Um, and that will probably be in excess of 3,000 an hour capacity for that. We'll put Sundance will probably go to a six pack uh, chair, which again, over 3,000 an hour capacity. Um, the Orient chair, which is a fixed grip quad now, would go to a, probably another six pack. Its terrain is almost identical to in slope and aspect and everything to the Sundance terrain. And so you know, there's a big part of what we're going to be doing is increasing the capacity of existing lifts. But we're also going to increase the trail capacity by another 50% uh, as well. So, you know, there's more lifts to go on the West Morrissey side uh, across the, the, the valley. Uh, we've got a, a chairlift going to go in there. Um, we've got about five peaks up on top of the mountain, which are not going to be as big a lifts, but they will spread the skiing around over. We're going to have right now 4,200 acres. We're going to have like 6,500 acres when we're said we're all said and done. So that's the, the long-term vision. And, you know, as in the lift business, one of the things you have to remember is it's not, uh, it's the efficiency of your plant. It's the, the person who operates the most efficient plants, who gets the optimum number of skiers on the terrain that doesn't crowd the terrain, that's who wins the game. You know, it's just like the most efficient vehicle fuel goes the farthest. And the ski business, the, the guy who serves the most ski terrain with the fewest lifts is the most efficient and provides a better quality experience for the guests. It's definitely a super efficient footprint that you have now because for the size of the resort, you might have the least amount of chairlifts for a resort of that size for a major tourist destination that I can think of off the top of my head. When you talk about those four or five peaks that could be developed, are those Mount Todd and back from that or where, where are those additional peaks? The top of the mountain is a little, I guess I'd call it funky, where Todd Peak is the highest peak. And it's the one in the rearmost of our of our terrain uh, pod that we have under license and lease. But there's there's uh, there's the Gills, which is on the, on the eastern side. There's the top of the world, which is our existing peak. There's the West Bowl Peak. Then there's again we already talked to Todd Peak, and there's another peak in there called Skunk. So at the top of the mountain, there's four or five peaks in there, and it just creates a really uh, different experience. You can go up and ski any aspect on the compass off, any, off those peaks, and it's not huge fall line and vertical. It's probably all around 900 foot to 1,000 foot vertical, but they're very different in where the aspect and where the snow quality is and all kinds of stuff. So that's thinking long term, lots of exciting stuff in there. Short term, though, you have some pretty big projects as well. 
starting with the new West Bowl Express Quad, which is scheduled to come online for the 2024 to 25 ski season. So tell us about this lift, Darcy. Where will it be? What is it replacing? And why is now the right time to build the West Bowl Express? So West Bowl Express is just, uh, we've, we've skied in the West Bowl for many years and it's been serviced by an old platter lift T-bar. That lift uh, died <laughs> during, during the pandemic. It just basically, we, we couldn't get it physically repaired at any kind of reasonable price or time frame. And, and so we did, uh, just had to make the decision to decommission it. Uh, so the West Pole quad going to go in there is over twice as big a lift as the old T-bar. Uh, it's going to have a length of about 1.5 kilometers, 1,500 meters, which is, you know, nearly 5,000 feet. It will have a vertical of about 1,200 feet, 1,400 feet. Can't remember the exact number off the top of my head right now. It adds about 500 acres of terrain that we couldn't ski lift service before that people skied out there and skied down and then had to hike back into the, into the, into the mountain. And it's a completely different experience. It's completely alpine skiing. Like we have skiing alpine now in the top half of Crystal Bowl and in the top part of the Burfield. Uh, but West Bowl is on the other side of the mountain uh, it's got more of a west and southerly facing, and it is up high and very much a, a completely different uh, viewpoint. It's like going up to a different mountain. Where will the new lift load and land in relation to that T-bar that you mentioned? Um, it's the, 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 the unload point, we move to a different peak. We move to uh, uh, the other peak beside the, the where the old T-bar was. Um, so it will be about uh, 100 feet further uphill. And the the down, uh, the bottom terminal will go another 1,000 feet downhill from where the existing um, old T-bar bottom was. So in the same bowl, just there will be a lot more to ski, terrain to skiers right and a lot more terrain at the bottom of the pod. Okay. So will that change your boundary or will it be within the existing boundary? It'll change the boundary. Yeah. It'll change the ski area, the, the ski operating boundary, not our uh, master plan uh, controlled recreation area boundary. Right. But the boundary the skiers see on trail maps. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. Because you take it up higher, you'll be able to go farther out to the West and, and ski farther, way further down in the bowl. So talk about how that will impact the trail network. Right now you have this web of blue trails, Harry's Run, Long Draw, Fall Line, The Spine, Short Draw, coming yeah. off that old T-bar. Will those runs be lengthened? Will you have new runs? What are you planning? Those runs will all be lengthened right to the bottom. Mm -hmm. And then you will see more terrain out to the west. Uh, the skier's right when you're looking at that map you're looking at. Uh, those will also come down. Now, there's a ravine that comes across at the bottom the last 100 or so meters before you get to the left. But all that terrain out to the right will be drained right back down to the bottom of the left. Is that still going to be blue terrain top to bottom? Is there some blacks mixed in there? Any greens? Uh, it's predominantly blue terrain. There's a couple of black ski runs that come off the top of the world side that will ski down into that area. Uh, and you'll be able to access them off the West Bowl as well. But it's predominantly blue terrain. 
That's a really exciting expansion and project. Talk about how that will impact, if it does impact, access to gills from the top of that list. Lift. Will you be able to ski down to gills from there? Will it be a little hike? What what's the uh, what, what's that look like? You'll be able to ski down to gills from there. Uh, if you want the whole gills experience, you'll have to do a little hike of about uh, 50 meters uphill to get to the top of Skunk before you go back down into gills. But you can ski around that knob that Skunk is uh, on either side and then get into the gills area easier off of West Pole. Now, coming out of the gills, you're still going to have to do a little hike unless you stop <laughs> skiing before you get to the bottom of the gills and, and traverse out. Well, sounds like it's worth it to have the, that terrain to yourself over there. I'm curious. So so this lift is planned for 2024 to 25 ski season. Yeah. Are you starting work this summer? And if so, what do you hope to achieve this summer and then next year? We actually started work last summer. Oh, wow. Okay. Last summer, we did uh, all of the trail layouts and, and a whole bunch of the logging and, and, and a bunch of the groundwork for the top terminal and the bottom terminal. Uh, this summer, we'll put in all the concrete and the electrical infrastructure and all the underground stuff and uh, do more uh, fine trail grading work and, and clean up, finish up the logging and all that stuff. So that the only thing that will be due in the summer of 24 is the actual installation of the lift equipment. Is that your typical process, Darcy? Does this reflect the supply chain issues we've been seeing in, in construction slowdowns we've seen from the major lift manufacturers? Or is this just how you always approach lifts? You said earlier that you like to work very deliberately. Is this your general process or is this kind of adapting to the times? This is adapting to the times. Government processes have become longer over the pandemic for a whole variety of reasons. Getting approvals and all that kind of stuff takes a little longer than it used to. Uh, lift manufacturing because the you know nobody's been put in a lift for a couple of years, there's a big backlog of people wanting to build lifts. And so um, even with our connections into the lift industry, we uh, you see the same supply chain issues as everybody else is dealing with right now, that it's, uh, you couldn't go out and order a ski lift today and have it installed next year unless you want to pay a super premium on it. Uh, you'd, you'd have to go out and order your lift for the following year. So... You know, for us, that works because it's, uh, you know, it was deliberate. It's, it's all new terrain and we have to require extension of our electrical infrastructure and, and, and a lot of our other infrastructure to get up there and service this terrain properly. So it gives us a little more time to do that. We'd like to ideally, ideally been able to put it out this year, but we'll bring it on stream next summer and uh, it'll be open for ready for opening day. Sounds exciting. So folks will still access that West Pole lift from Burfield. Burfield is this really interesting lift and the the trail map doesn't really do it justice as far as how long and tall it is compared to the other lifts because of the perspective of it. It looks like Morrissey is longer than Burfield, but Burfield has one of the longest continual vertical rises of any chairlift in North America, 2,892 feet. That is a fixed grip lift. I believe the ride time is somewhere around 21 minutes, but you can Correct me if I'm wrong there. One plan was to shorten Burfield once that new crystal lift was in place. Talk to us about Burfield, Darcy, and your current thinking around what you're going to do with that lift long term. Yeah, it's a good question. It's a historical installation. That was the first lift that was put in at, at Todd Mountain back in 1961. So the challenge for that is 
This, this is a, this is a funny story. This is long before my time, but you know they had X number of dollars to build a ski lift and the road and their other infrastructure to start the ski hill. And so they bought the ski lift, so that was committed, and they had a price, and they were building the road and they're building the other stuff, and that stuff costs more. <laughs> <laughs> and they originally wanted to put the lift in a different place, further up the valley. With them, they said, okay, we only got enough money to build the road and the infrastructure to this point, so let's build the lift here. Mm-hmm. And there was a, a, a contingent of the people at the time who wanted to, that one big lift to go right to the top because that was the whole appeal to get right to the top and everything right. like that. So they decided to build the lift in that location. And you're right, it's probably the longest double chair, single span ever built in right. North America, to my knowledge. <laughs> and in the old days, that was an interesting uh, uh, gambit. We wouldn't probably do the same thing today. And one of the challenges on the Burfield side is that's all black terrain. You, know, you look at the trail map there, everything's black and double black coming down to the bottom, unless you go over onto the other uh, slopes and come up back around and down the ridge. So one of the challenges with Burfield was when we came along was, do we need more capacity and can we, do we need to put the expense of a big detachable chair in to serve those uh, half a dozen double black diamond runs? And the shorter answer is no. <laughs> so we replaced it with a fixed grip, uh, more modern one. Uh, which runs fine, but it is a long lift line. Um, so the, the, we're still not 100% sure whether we're going to shorten Burfield. That's an option. But we're going to see how the West Bowl traffic flow goes and stuff. So you you, you can get there from Crystal. Uh, you can also ski a, a couple of different routes to get up Crystal. We upgraded Crystal to a 2,400-an-hour chair last year as well. So between Burfield and Crystal, we think we'll be able to supply the West Bowl quite handily for access. Um, and, and we're going to figure that that Burfield one out. Um, you know, it, it may be a shorter lift in the future, but I, I don't. we're not going to do that in, in the near future. So the plan is to get the West Bowl and see how the traffic flows actually work. You can access it from top of Burf, top of Crystal, and some other lifts that we'll have out there in the future. So it could be shortened, but it sounds like Converting that to a high-speed lift or replacing that with a high-speed lift is not an option. It's really um, not an efficient option, Stuart. Like it, it's the, the, the amount of people that can ski that terrain directly under that lift is quite limited. Mm-hmm. And the, all the rest of the terrain you want to ski over there and up to including the ridge is available from the sunburst chair and or the crystal chair. What can you tell us, Darcy, about Harry Burfield, the man who the na- lift is named after? He was a local character. Uh, he came along in the early days with the original investment group. He wasn't what we'd call one of the original founders, but he was probably the original cheerleader, you would call the guy. He was a very proponent. He ran the original ski shop. He was uh, basically heavily involved in running the mountain operation. I'm not sure if he ran the whole thing exactly or not. It was long before my time. He was a tireless advocate uh, of, of the resort area and stuff like that. And in fact, he was he he was killed in a in a plane crash on the shoulder of the mountain above the Burfield lift uh, when he was touring some prospective investors around there back in the 1960s. So it's um, 
He's a, he's a, he was seen as a colorful character and a real advocate for Todd Mountain. And uh, when the accident happened, uh, then they, they named that side of the mountain and the lift after him. Very nice tribute. So looking long term here, Darcy, after you complete that West Bowl lift, there's, as I said, so many lifts in the master plan. You have the West Morrissey lift, which you mentioned earlier. You have a potential lift up Gills. You have this Headwall's Pulse Gondola and uh, a Cross Valley Transfer Quad called the Gillivray. Yeah. What is what is next on your priority list as far as either those lifts I just mentioned or other other lifts that are in the master plan? Well, uh, probably West Morrissey is is uh, there's two or three. What, what we what we've done traditionally is we take two or three lifts and put them in that next one category. And then we watch our business and we watch the skier visits and we watch the, the skill classes and what's being used and what's not. And we try to figure out from there what's the where the market demand is for that next lift. So, you know, West Morrissey is on that list. A bigger Orient lift attachable to the top of that pod is, is, is in that list. West Bull was in that lift. We've decided to go with that one next. And then probably we're going to be talking about our sunburst and our sundance lift in the category of those are getting a lot of hours on them. They're very popular. They're used summer and winter, both of them now with our mountain biking. And so probably upgrading and replacing those. So those that's the three to five year scenario is those three, four lifts. And others that you would see, the pulse gondola is really a, a summer lift to take people up to the very top. We take... Uh, yeah, the people up to the sunburst in the bubble chair now in the summer. And so probably that gondola wouldn't, or that pulse gondola wouldn't come along until after the sunburst is upgraded. And the lifts uh, that you mentioned out to the, uh, the far east side, the McGilvery lift, there's a whole, all that uh, uh, real estate development land out there. It makes about 80% of that land ski in, ski in out. So that lift there would be a transport lift to take you up to the Morrissey side or up to the Orient side to ski back down to the, the major chairs over there. So that's really, that lift is going to be dependent on how fast we grow real estate out to the east. And so that's its main function, that one there. One of the big things for us, Stuart, is we have around nine to 10,000 beds on the mountain today. And 85% of those beds are within a 100-meter walk of a ski trail or a ski lift. And that's a big thing for us. We want to maintain that very high percentage of ski in, ski out access or short walk to it, which is defined as less than 100, 150 meters. And so that's a big thing is some of these lifts are, are providing those functions as well as uh, terrain access as well as pure vertical skiing. How about gills and then a lift to the top of Mount Todd? Is that far future? Are those things that you would consider after that five-year window? Probably after the five-year window, uh, certainly to the top of the, the peak of Todd. That's um, that's more, as I'll call that European style skiing where you go out there to tour around and see the view and stuff like that. There's not a lot of big vertical fall line out there, but it's fascinating to go through a completely different environment and see it from a completely alpine perspective up there. So that's kind of a cool. 
the gills lift right now is there's an important element in skiing that we're, we're watching closely. And that's the whole slack country thing is people want to be able to go out there and have that experience. That's more like an old style ski experience and earn your turns kind of a mentality. Right. And, and there's a certain element of the ski crowd that's quite avid skiers and, 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 and hardcore and they want that experience. And that's our best experience right now in that area is in the Gills area at Sun Peaks. So we're evaluating when we put a lift in there exactly, because you can go out there and earn your turns. You can ski down that thousand feet of vertical and it's it's not groomed. It's all uh, kind of out back. And, and then you got to hike a little bit back to get back into the lift service stuff. And we see a lot of people every day, literally hundreds, want to do that and have that experience. Now, they don't do that every run. They don't do that all day, but they still want to have that experience. It's part of their overall uh, enjoyment of the resort. So we're looking at that as where would we replace that slack country in the future? Uh, We're going to have a plan for that before we put a lift in there. And Orient's an interesting one, Darcy. This was a new lift in 2018. So talk to us about your thinking around the evolution of Orient. Would you actually replace that lift? Would you upgrade it? Would it be along the same line or would it go higher? What, what's the, what's your thinking for Orient long-term? Orient would go up to the top when we, when we upgrade it, it would become detachable. It's a fixed grip now. It's a fixed grip about a thousand feet long. The final chair lift would be about 1600 feet long. And that would be a detachable four or six. There's enough ski terrain on that to support a six and it's been engineered uh, and the towers that were put in for the fixed grip were engineered to be upgradable to a six pack. So that's, uh, that's what we look at doing out there. And that's what I, that's what I'll call you. Look at that one again. It's a, it's a large bread and butter terrain pod. And it's, um, there's another advantage to that one is there's a second village for Sun Peaks. Because our valley bottom is quite narrow and you can ski across it. In a lot of places, it's only a few hundred feet wide. So there's a whole other village down there we call the East Village. It's the bottom of the Orient and the bottom of the Morrissey detachables. And uh, so we'll build a village in there, pedestrian-oriented village, same as our existing village, almost exactly the same size. And that really helps the, the ski-in, ski-out stuff as well. So that's why Orient is attractive. And it's the bread-and-butter ski terrain that's the blue you know the bell curve of skiers is still few beginners lots of intermediates a few experts in double black diamonds and what we've always tried to do is build the ski resort to reflect the market that overall not one or two elements of the market so that orient lift if you were to extend it it would just go straight up that peak that's marked right now just as wilderness that's right the village thing is really interesting. You said earlier you imagine five or six thousand people living right there at Sun Peaks. I, I'm not sure what the number is right now. I think it's around maybe a thousand. So, as you look long term at this development, North America has done a less great job than say Europe of building these villages, right? Which, which in the case of Europe, I guess they've just been there for thousands of years. But what do you envision? You said a walkable village. How do you envision scaling up the community that you have right now in 
a way that can accommodate all those people without just becoming a sprawl. And I appreciate that you're in a valley here, but but what's the thinking about this, the type of development you'll do to accommodate all these guests and all these people living here? Well, we want to concentrate the commercial developments in the two village cores, the restaurants, the shopping, the walkthrough stuff. Those will also be completely ski in, ski out places. And for the rest of the resort, it's about two, two and a half miles from one end to the other. So we're going to have two villages. We've got a little commercial core that's developing around the original Burfield side here, uh, serving more of the local residents and stuff like that. But that's there's a little mini village node, if you will, down on this end. So our objective here, Stuart, is very European in mentality. And we went out and looked at a bunch of European resorts when we were in our planning process. We did tours on them. We did tours all over North American resorts, Western and Eastern, and looked at what people were doing and decided we want a, a, a pedestrian-oriented community, not just the, the core villages. We want people to be able to walk from one place to another in five or ten minutes and leave their car at home. And that's really a big philosophy for us. The whole resort is planned around it. So, you know, you can walk a kilometer in, you know, ten minutes with your family and so there'll be three different places in the up and down the valley here. You can walk and get those similar services. And with skiing, the way we've got the lifts oriented up and down the valley, you should be able to get on a lift at any point in the valley and ski the whole resort, never have to take your ski off. And that's really what we're trying to achieve here is a resort with the modern lifts and amenities uh, and the, the walkable nature and character of an old European resort. As far as getting to the resort, is car primarily still the way that folks arrive? Have you worked on any sort of buses or is there any long-term vision for, I don't know, a train or anything else to get folks up, maybe so that, that they don't even have to bring the car? Well, I, you know, I, I talked earlier about we have a 25, 30% of our de- guests come from out of country. Most of those people come to the resort on a bus or a shuttle of some kind or a taxi and don't have a car while they're here. Like uh, I would say if 10% of our destination guests from out of the country have a car, I'd be surprised. We have buses that will take them to the community of Kamloops for the local uh, junior hockey games or for shopping trips. Uh, we have a lot of shopping, you know, dozens of res- restaurants on the mountain and stuff already. And those will only continue to grow. A whole objective here is for this to be as much of a pedestrian community as we can make it. And it's not on the master plan right now, but I've been looking at gondola transport systems. And I know the lift manufacturers of the world are using gondola transports in urban settings all over the world, particularly in mountainous urban settings. And I could even see the day where there would be a gondola run through the valley from one end, Burfield east or west end to the east end and have three or four stops where you'd be able to walk a couple hundred meters in either direction from a gondola stop and you would never need a vehicle wow. if you lived here. Oh, that'd be so cool. Yeah. That'd be amazing. So nonetheless, some folks are still going to have to keep coming up in a, in a vehicle The primary access point right now off the Trans-Canada Highway is up through Kamloops. And the resort actually isn't far from the Trans-Canada Highway on the east end. 
but you have to drive west all the way through Kamloops, go north, then come back east on the access road. There have been plans floated over the years to connect Sun Peak to the Trans-Canada Highway. Are, are those plans at all still under discussion? Is that idea dead? What, what's your what's your thinking long terms about connecting to Trans-Canada through the east? It's been our in our plan since day one. Um, it is, uh, you know, it, it will require a provincial highway. And so uh, those are major funding decisions of the provincial government. Uh, we intend to keep, uh, you know, pushing the point and, and trying to. Uh, we have, uh, there's some uh, relationships there with our uh, First Nations local bands partners that uh, they need to be part of that process. Uh, but I think in the long run, we'll, we'll have a road coming up from the east there. They're actually logging roads through that territory now you can drive through. You know, it's it's really a, a, a funding. It's probably a, a 50 to $75 million project. And uh, we'd like to work with the provincial government and, and other local governments and our local First Nations bands to to make that happen. And it's, it's just that's one that's going to take time. And uh, but it's I fully think that that's the long term that makes the most sense. It would also make the resort accessible. That eastern side of the resort is a big summer area. There's some major lakes down there. There's a lot of cottage country summer, which would become uh, beds for accessible to the resort if that road. And that road's only about 30, 35 kilometers long, which is just over 20 miles. But it's through mountainous terrain, so it's a little bit more expensive to build. So as you contemplate that project, Darcy, I'm really curious how you consider the cultural piece of that and how that could change the character of the resort. There's something sort of special about being at the end of the road when you're a ski resort, something like Telluride, where you really have to very deliberately get there. And once you make that a through road that connects both ways, you lose that sense of isolation. So curious how you're thinking about that element of it and preserving that character piece, that sort of wilderness piece of Sun Peaks, if that road were to happen? So uh, I know what you're saying, but this would not be a shortcut in any way to go somewhere <laughs> else. Right. Um, so I think that's the, the, the major differential here. If, if this all of a sudden became a through road from the North Thompson over to the, to the South Thompson, okay. But because of the way the road was built and we're going through the mountain and the speeds you could drive, you're going to still be able to drive from the North Thompson to the South Thompson on a four lane freeway in less time than you could come through Sun Peaks. So coming to Sun Peaks is not going to be, um, uh, you're still going to have to make the conscious decision that you want to go to Sun Peaks. And so for those people who want to come from the Eastern end and come to Sun Peaks, it will be easier and more convenient. But they will still be wanting to come to Sun Peaks for that experience, not a travel through to somewhere else. All right, Darcy, lots of exciting things in the future. It is is really cool to watch it all develop and to watch how you're building this thing. I really appreciate your time today. I can't wait to watch it all happen. So thank you very much for all of your time and insight. And I wish you the best of luck 
on this West Bowl lift and all your future projects. Well, thank you very much for your time, Stuart. It's been great talking to you. And if you ever want to come and uh, see us in uh, live and in person, which I highly recommend, uh, feel free to give us a call. I am most certainly going to take you up on that. Thank you so much, Darcy. All right. Have a great day, Stuart. That's Darcy Alexander, Vice President and General Manager of Sun Peaks, British Columbia. That was a lot of fun, Darcy. Thank you so much for that. It's not often that we get to hear from someone who quite literally helped build a ski area into what it is today. And I so appreciate the time and insight. And I really appreciate all of you for listening. Lots more pods coming your way. Granite Gorge, New Hampshire and Stevens Pass, Washington already in the can. And I have episodes scheduled with the leaders of China Peak, Timberline, West Virginia, Mount Snow, Great Divide, Killington, Keystone, Cranmore, Cascade, Wisconsin, Schweitzer, Atitash, Mount Rose, and many, many more. And I am adding new episodes all the time. The very best way to get those as soon as they're alive is to subscribe to the Storm Ski newsletter at stormskiing.com. New pods appear in your email box several hours before syncing with their podcast services, including Apple and Spotify. There are free and paid tiers of the newsletter, and paid subscribers do receive podcasts three days before everyone else. You can also follow the storm on Twitter and Instagram at Journal. Until next time, stay well, stay safe. I'm Stuart Winchester, and I will talk to you again very soon. The Storm Skiing Podcast is a Quicksilver Films production.